Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is multi-award-winning novelist Marissa Labozetta. Marissa published her first piece in the Washington Star. She won first prize in the Rio Grande Writers Fiction Contest and was a finalist in Playboy's Victoria Chain Heider Memorial Literary Award for Fiction and in New Letters Literary Awards. Melissa went on to publish stories in the best-selling When I Am an Old Woman, I Shall Wear Purple, The American Voice, Show Me a Hero, Great Contemporary Story About Sports, The Pegasus Review, VIA, Knitlet, Don't Tell Mama, The Penguin Book of Italian-American Writing, Paradise, Our Mothers, Ourselves, BeliefNet.com, Italian Americana, Perigi, and American Fiction. In 1999, Marissa released her first novel, Stay With Me, Layla. In 2006, she received a Pushcart Prize for her At the Copa collection. It was also a finalist for the John Gardner Fiction Award in 2009. Forecast for a sunny day from that collection won the Watchman Art Center Award for Short Fiction in 2010. Her 2013 novel, Sometimes It Snows in America, was an Eric Hoffer Award finalist. Marissa and I will be having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey, her passion for storytelling, and her latest novel, A Day in June. Good morning, Marissa. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Good. Good morning, Johnny. I'm doing just fine. The sun is out. (laughs) Fantastic. It is wonderful to have you on the air with me this morning. A Day in June is a delightful and entertaining read. I love the book cover, by the way. Congratulations on its release. Oh, thank you so much. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. You've been on our show a couple of times before, once in 2013, and the last time was in 2016. For the sake of our new listeners, Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, My early life hasn't changed since the last time I spoke to you. (laughs) I uh, grew up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in a very large extended Italian-American family among predominantly immigrants and first-generation families. Uh, My father had immigrated with his parents as well as my mother's parents uh, from Italy. Uh, We lived in the Mapleton-Bensonhurst neighborhoods, uh, which was the Little Italy of Brooklyn, and that remained uh, the Little Italy, really, of New York far longer than the Little Italy of Manhattan. Uh, There was never a question of where I or, uh, you know, any of my friends would be on Sunday afternoon or holidays because we were always with family, uh, Mm -hmm. and we were all doing the same thing. Uh, I spent several teenage years in Long Island, uh, where my uh, parents moved, and then I left after graduating high school to attend Boston College. Uh, There I majored in Spanish and secondary education. I returned to New York. I taught high school for a brief time. Then I moved to Washington, D.C. 
uh, where I was a teaching fellow in languages and linguistics at Georgetown University. Uh, subsequently, I worked uh, as an education specialist for the D.C. public schools. Um, it was there where I really began to write seriously in Washington. I met my husband there. We moved to New Mexico, and we had another adventure. We began a family, and then we eventually moved back east to be closer to our uh, main family units. Uh, and, and we still live here where we came to Western Massachusetts. And um, here I taught for a while. I taught Italian-American studies through literature at the University of Massachusetts and Smith College. But um, here I am with my family still that continues to grow, and I continue to write. Well, that's fantastic. One of the things I do want to know, lay people like me, I know you are uh, extremely educated. What does a teaching fellow in the Graduate School of Languages and Linguistics do? <laughs> okay, probably sounds a lot more mysterious than it is. Uh, getting a fellowship is really getting a scholarship. So you're a teaching fellow, whether you're a man or a woman, you're a teaching fellow. Uh, since my major concentration was Spanish literature, along with mm -hmm. theoretical and applied linguistics, uh, I belong, so to speak, to the Spanish department and I was required to teach Spanish language classes to undergraduates in exchange for my free tuition. That's how it worked. Mm -hmm. and then at mm -hmm. the same time, I took a full load of courses in the disciplines you know, that I mentioned. Uh, but, of course, I had to earn extra money, so I would hold various other jobs, which the school was not happy about, but you have to survive. And I was actually the receptionist at the first legal acupuncture center in the United States, which was down in D.C., Mm -hmm. And back in the day, and I also taught English as a second language in a visa program for young adult foreigners, uh, very apropos to programs going on now. But uh, this was in Arlington, Virginia, that I did that. Fantastic. You just work. You, you get free <laughs> education, and then you have to do something at the school, and usually it's teaching or assist another professor in turn right. for your free education. Yeah. How did you discover you love writing at a very young age? Uh, I, I think when I discovered that, um, I had a good knack for it. Uh, I'd like mm -hmm. to tell a story that when we did move, as I mentioned, from the city to the suburbs, I was in high school, which was a very dramatic and painful t uh, change for me. And I was asked by my English teacher to write something to give her an idea of what I could do. And so I wrote about um, my misery <laughs> living there. And she read it aloud in <laughs> class, and nobody laughed, and they kind of really were taken with it. And then I realized, oh, I could, I could do this and, you know, garner mm -hmm. attention from people. And, and uh, as a freshman in college then in my English, required English classes, uh, the, the, cla the, the um, assignments that I excelled in were the creative writing assignments. Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, later when I worked in the District of Columbia, um, as I said, the Biling Office of Bilingual Education, I, had, I started writing again on the side, and I had started to publish in a local newspaper that was at the time the Washington Star. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I also lived uh, on a street, and I befriended a woman on my street who had studied uh, journalism. She was a journalist, but she was trying her hand at fiction writing, and uh, she was a great source of inspiration and encouragement to me. And we would go to readings by Ann Beattie and other emerging writers at that who were you know, coming up at that time. Uh, she published several works of fiction, but then she returned to journalistic writing. Very, very interesting. 
When do storytelling ends and opinion begins? Hmm. Uh, I don't really think there is a, a separation of the two. Uh, mm-hmm. In fiction, I mean, a writer may inject opinion any time, but this should be done through characters, or not right. one character or a number of characters, and not be an expose that the reader hears coming from the author, which on occasion you that does happen, and um, <laughs> I really shouldn't happen. You hear that voice back there, you say, but who's talking, you know, and it's the author right, really right. coming through with telling you something. It's okay to tell them something, but not in their voice. You want it to come through in the story through the characters. Uh, and the opinions, of course, have to be fitting to those characters. Um, mm. They might be conflicting through a variety of characters and their confrontations, but they have to come through the characters. You know, the, the author can't be heard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. What are the ingredients necessary for writing a compelling story? Uh, well, yeah, I think the basics, you have to have an appealing premise, number one. Uh, something that's going to grab people's attention, a premise or storyline, and then well-defined characters and the conflict, whether internal and or external, and then you bring that to a climax, and then you have to have a believable and satisfying resolution, some, mm-hmm. whatever it be. It's got to somehow be satisfying. Even if it's left open-ended, it's got to somehow be satisfying <laughs> to your reader. That sounds wonderful. Oh, no, I just said pretty basic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> is a touch of comedy and humor relevant in any writing? Is it relevant? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by relevant. Do you mean is it necessary? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, is it yeah. necessary? Well, I would say that uh, intelligent humor goes a long way, even mm-hmm. in the most serious writing. It certainly makes some, uh, some of the hardest... Uh, pieces palatable. Um, I don't say that it's a it's a it's something that must be in writing, but um, I think that uh, it's the irony that readers like to identify with, or the fits of right. relief experience in the darkest depths of a drama when they can identify with that. Uh, I think uh, that is a plus. It's not to say that it's a necessary element again, but when it's done well, I think that good humor, good humor, I could see my New York coming out, good humor, not good humor, uh, <laughs> truly, truly makes us feel that, um, you know, we have been handed a gift, I think. You know, right. Someone can, can make you smile, can make you laugh, even in the, in the darkest of times, and, and not be making a mockery of the situation. I think that then you're handed a gift, you know. So it's not it's not easy to inject humor, uh, mm-hmm. you know, often, and it's right. not it's not always fitting. But if you can and it's done right, I think it is uh, a wonderful gift we get. That's fantastic. That's interesting to know. How do you know when a story is done? Because mm, you have to go make dinner, you know, and you have to <laughs> clean the house or something. <laughs> um, or like I hit 75,000 woods, that's you know. it. <laughs> right, you have to pick up your kids from soccer practice and say, oh, we're done. Uh, <laughs> I would um, say that um, uh, for me, I, you know, if I'm writing a story, let's say a short story, I really do feel I have this inner clock, and maybe it's because I've done it for a long mm-hmm. time. And you just kind of go along this ride, and I reach a certain point in the story, and then I know automatically something tells me I've come to the climax. Okay, time to wind down. 
mm-hmm. whether the story is 40 pages or 14 pages, the process is the same. You know, you just uh, you, you arrive at a certain place, and then you know it's time to, to uh, wrap it up. Um, because a, a story can be written so much faster than a novel uh, since it revolves around, around one plot, the timing mm-hmm. seems like a natural part of a process for me. It's a bit different with a novel because it's such a long process. And a long, novel mm-hmm. just takes years to write uh, a story you can write in a, in a few weeks, a few months. So it involves, uh, you know, many, a novel involves many different subplots that I think it's often more calculation rather than internal rhythm. Although you do have that, that internal clock going and functioning in the same way for maybe individual chapters of a book. You know, you see it that way. Mm-hmm. Even though the, everything is not tied up at the end, you kind of know when to bring a chapter to an end and hook it into the, the, the next chapter that's coming. It can't end. It has to be a lead-in somehow to the next chapter. Uh, after the conflicts have reached, all the conflicts have reached their climaxes, it's time for the resolution that I had mentioned before to begin and tying up, however loosely or tightly. Um, but in all events, it has to be satisfactory to the reader. Uh, so then, you do, then that takes place. So it's a little more calculating. It's over such a longer period of time. Um, but then you know once everything's kind of um, tied up one way or another, as I said, loosely or tightly, but satisfactorily, mm-hmm. then you know then you know you're done. It's time to be done. Uh, people will say, you know, you can always go back and work on something. That's a different thing. But there comes a point where you have to say, that's it. We're done. We end here. <laughs> then you revise. You revise. But that's. Yeah. Uh, but as far as the ending, your story, your storyline, which is I think what you're talking about. You, know, yeah. you generally, sometimes you know the end of your line when you begin 300 pages before, and sometimes it comes as you go along to you. You don't, you don't know what your story, how you're going to end until you're in the story, you're moving along. And sometimes you have that idea you work to, towards, from the very beginning, although you're not sure how you're going to get there. <laughs> but you right. kind of know this is where I want to be in the end. It could change, but sometimes you, you do know the end. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you do a lot of research before writing your novels? Um, well, I could say that, you know, uh, all novels require a certain amount of research, but it depends mm-hmm. on the subject matter and the knowledge and the experience uh, of the writer uh, about what they're uh, on the subject matter. Um, some require, as I said, some require a lot more research than others. For example, uh, my novel... Sometimes It Snows in America was inspired mm-hmm. by the true story of a Somali woman's life in Africa and America. That took a tremendous amount of research over a very long period of time uh, due to the fact that, well, uh, because of her condition, it was, uh, was, wasn't always uh, easy for me to get access to her. It wasn't always easy for me to get the, the, um, the story from her. Uh, I had to research prison life, addicted addiction life, uh, recovery life, uh, abuse in some people's life. It was uh, life in Africa, uh, a lot of history. So it was language. It was a, a, a lot, many years of research. Now, uh, something like A Day in June that I just finished, a novel like mm-hmm. that, there was research uh, with regard to um, to places uh, that I I had to uh, travel to that I wanted to write about, uh, about, I was, spoke about dogma, writings of certain theologians, uh, about photography, my, my 
one of my mm-hmm. protagonists is a photographer. I'm not a professional photographer, so I had to research there. Uh, I had to research life of Jesuits uh, mm-hmm. and uh, another uh, missionary fraternity that I mentioned I talk about a little bit in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, for the most part, I was dealing with more familiar surroundings, personalities, subject matters that I you know, am, am more comfortable dealing with, have knowledge about. And so it wasn't nearly the amount, I feel, of research that uh, the other novel took. So it, so it varies. It varies. But you're always, there's always something. You always want to cross-check. You always, even if you're just talking to people you know, uh, I consider that research, and it is research. If you, you may have to call your local policeman and say, hey, I'm that you're down when this happens or that happens to a person right. who does this. Uh, and you have to know the process because we can't know it. We, don't, we get in and then we have to have it right. I had a policeman say to me, I, said, I asked him a question, actually it was about this book, and I said, uh-huh. I said to him, would this happen? How, how, what would happen if such and such situation ha- uh, turned up? What would happen to this woman? And yeah. he told me, and, I, and it sort of wasn't what I wanted to hear because not what I wanted to write. And I said, oh, I was disappointed. And I said, really? Oh, wouldn't be this other? And he said, well, you can write whatever you want. It's fiction, right? And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't get it. You can't make up stuff that someone sits there and then reads and said, this is ridiculous. This would never happen. So I right. said, no, it, you have to have some verisimilitude when you're writing fiction. <laughs> but then that's why I'm talking to you. I said, and I have to know uh, if this would really happen or not. So it's funny how people have that attitude. You write whatever you want. It's fiction. I said, no, no. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> very, very interesting. Is daydreaming part of the strategy? Daydreaming? I don't have time to daydream. <laughs> I'm so busy. Uh, I love to daydream. I have a, a, a novelist and playwright friend, and he said, you should take time in, in the day, and you sit there uh-huh. when you do nothing, and you just look out and, and you know, news and this and that. And I just say, really? Because I don't seem to have that time. <laughs> but... Uh, I would say it depends on what, if you're talking about referring to daydreaming being that. Um, mm-hmm. I say, though, once you start a, a book, a novel in particular, uh, again, since it, it goes on for so long, the writing of it, it's always on your mind. From yeah. the day one, you know, that you start, you never get it off your mind. My husband's so happy when I finish a book because I'm always <laughs> in another world for several years. And he'll look at me and say, he'll talk and he'll say, you're not you're not here, right? Are you? You're in wherever. And I say, yeah, 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 I am there because you uh-huh. you can't let it get out of your mind. You have to let things ruminate in your mind all the time, and that's where you're figuring out what you're going to do or what. And, and things catch your eye in in life, mm-hmm. and you say, oh, am I going to do that? Use that? Will that something like that would affect my character? You go to sleep thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. So it's always on your mind. And if you want to call, I don't know. I guess it's not really daydreaming, but it certainly is. Uh, in in any time that you're not sitting there, actually at the computer, mm-hmm. or with pen in hand, you are still thinking, and it's roaming around in your mind. You're just always. Uh, you maybe call it daydreaming about it, but you're you're thinking about it. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that's part of the work, though. I consider that part of the work. You know, it's. Uh, you have to do that. That's what part of it is. People think it's just you go up and you sit there a few hours, yeah. you put everything down, and you walk away. And it's not. A lot of it is time that you have to be, you have to be thinking, just thinking about it. 
That's true. Very, very interesting. Yeah. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest for this morning is multi-award winning novelist Marissa Labozetta. In 1999, Marissa released her first novel, Stay With Me, Layla. In 2006, she received a Pushcart Prize for her At the Copa collection. It was also a finalist for the John Gardner Fiction Award in 2009. Forecast for a Sunny Day from that collection won the Watch Hunt Art Center Award for Short Fiction in 2010. Her 2013 novel, Sometime It Snows in America was an Eric Hoffer Award finalist. Marissa and I are having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey, her passion for storytelling, and her latest novel, A Day in June. Marissa, what was your intention in writing A Day in June? Well, I really wanted to write a book about millennials. You know, when I start a book, Mm -hmm. Johnny, I like to give myself a new challenge whether it's a a short story collection, whether it's linked short stories, or or it's a novel, but it's in an unusual setting. I just uh, like to, I like change, and that's maybe, I like to redo my rooms a lot too, so I guess that's part of (laughs) of me. But uh, I do daydream about decorating, (laughs) that I do. (laughs) So I uh, wanted to write a book about this time about millennials, but in their viewpoint. I didn't want Mm -hmm. to get out of my generation. Uh, so I wanted to write a love story where they were the protagonists. I wanted to get into their heads. I wanted to relate to readers um, of all generations their con- their concerns, their pressures, their these millennials need their their um, feelings they have to achieve certain goals, um, the insecurities they might have, the images they feel they have to live up to in the face of uh, contemporary issues, and one of them in the forefront nowadays being religion. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the characters, Jason, uh, who has a religious calling, he believes, uh, and um, in a society where numbers of priests are seriously dwindling, uh, where the Catholic Church is uh, being met with tremendous mm-hmm. uh, skepticism and criticism and where celibacy still is firmly in place. So what happens when love meets Vying religious beliefs uh, in, in what happens in this book. Uh, we have more young people today who are the products of intermarriage, too, than we had mm-hmm. a generation before. So uh, intermarriage in many ways, culturally, uh, not just ethnically, and, and also uh, with regards to religion and to faith. And so we'll undoubtedly have more in the, in the next, with the next generation. So how do the products of these marriages deal with the different religions and cultures that they were raised with, and then what do they do when they fall in love or encounter uh, someone of another faith, another culture? Um, does it affect their thoughts on same-sex marriage, uh, which we've got in the forefront now? Mm-hmm. I wanted to explore how generations of today interact also with um, how, let's say, how the millennials interact with the baby boomers who are their parents, how the baby boomers interact with their parents, whether are the mm-hmm. uh, millennials' grandparents. Uh, how, do the, how do the millennials deal with both of these? Together, so they're observing how the how the baby boomers are dealing with their parents. Yet they, at the same time, are dealing with their own. They're dealing with their grandparents. But I wanted to do it all from 
their point of view from their heads, get into their heads. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. This book is a departure from your other works, correct? I think a little bit, in a little way. Um, mm-hmm. It might be a little more likened to the last one of Thieves Never Steal in the Rain, a little bit, yeah. um, which is one of my favorites. But um, I, I, uh, I did start out wanting to write something more humorous. You talked about uh, humor before, and I did want to start out with something a little yeah. lighter, a little more humorous, uh, particularly after having done the very, the very heavy uh, snows, I call it sometimes it snows in America. <laughs> and even my last one dealt uh, with some pretty heavy topics, even though I think it you know, was done in a, in a palatable way. Um, and we dealt with the supernatural, et cetera. But I wanted to write something a little more, a little lighter uh, than the other subject matter. But I soon found out that life is really funny for about 10 minutes mm-hmm. before you mm-hmm. then you're up against the grave issues. And that's the way life is, you know, as you know. Right. So there is clearly serious, we're t- looking at serious topics here, but mm-hmm. in a palatable way. Um, we have characters like Faye, Ryan, the young woman's grandmother, Jewish grandmother, um, who is, uh, you know, and in Tiffany at times, her roommate, uh, who, she has a lesbian room and her grandmother is this Jewish, hilarious, uh, you know, grandmother, but all with different issues. Um, uh, and we have to see how do they, how do they interact with one another? How do they take on the, the uh, situations that one another are in? The grandmother's in a nursing home. She needs caretaking. How do we deal with caretaking? Right. Now, that's a big topic in our, you know, in our society, society right now. No, we have yeah. so many, yes, so many elders. Uh, how do we deal with same-sex marriage? And Tiffany is her roommate, and how, does, how do the old generations deal with mm-hmm. her? Um, so at uh, some point we have to... We always have to face illness, death, bad will, as I said, uh, <laughs> caretaking. And so, you know, while I think that there's a lot of humor in this book uh, because the characters are funny, many of yeah. them are, uh, and you do have to have humor in life, uh, we look at some serious issues in it. So it's sure. a little bit of a departure, but um, I like to think that while it's uh can be very enjoyable it's it's weighted it does have a gravitas mm-hmm. as they say so right right fantastic what i like about your novel is the fact that you are addressing current social issues in a very what i consider positive way because it sort of like you bring it to the forefront for conversation mm-hmm. we're not trying to sway one way or the other but the fact that it just brings it to the forefront for like a better term, your kitchen table conversation. And it's up to each individual to take it for what they want. Each of us have our own values and we have to decide that on our own. Having said that, are you banned from going to Vermont? Am I banned? You down in Vermont? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no, and I'm not from Vermont, and I've never lived in Vermont. <laughs> no. I don't know what they think right in Vermont. I haven't been up there yet to do any readings. They haven't invited me. Well, maybe I am banned. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. I use Vermont uh, because uh, I did have a niece. 
um, who this is how I got the see for this story. She had attended a wedding, one by a mm-hmm. friend of hers, and it would, took place in a small Vermont town, which was appealing to me. And that's about the end of the similarity. There's nothing <laughs> else there. But I love that idea, and I thought, I thought it was fascinating. I don't know why those people did it. Uh, I, I, I don't know much about it, but I thought, you know, I like the idea of contrasting the rural mm-hmm. boy and this town with the city, city girls and having, uh, both having preconceived notions about the, you know, about the other. And, yeah. um, so, uh, that's why I, I, you know, Vermont is such an idyllic type place. And, uh, and so we think, and uh, I thought I could, you know, just do a lot of damage there, right? By using <laughs> it was very interesting. You may have to disguise yourself. I know. <laughs> when definitely. you cross the state line. <laughs> <laughs> Can you provide us a little background to the world of the protagonists? Yeah, well, these were in in 2013. This is where when the novel starts. Eric Belanger is a 32-year-old uh, photographer. He returned to his hometown of what I call Bracton, Vermont, to care for his mother, and um, who was ill. And he's a member, becomes a member of the Chamber of Commerce, and he convinces convinces the chamber to uh, hold this contest because the economy of the town is suffering from the uh, past financial crisis of 2008. And they're really in a bad way. So he also has personal motives that we learn later for wanting this contest to um, succeed. And his best friend is, uh, is an African-American high school teacher, and he's also pursued by his great, to his great annoyance by uh, the chamber's president, uh, who still carries a high school crush on him. So that's Eric. And uh, the woman who wins the contest is a Bostonian, Ryan Toscano. She was raised in New York, but she uh, lives in Boston. Her mother's family is from Boston. She's the child of an Italian-American father from New York and a Jewish mother from Boston. Uh, they, were, they were very much typical rebellious baby boomers in their heyday. And Ryan the uh, young woman, has an intense and loving relationship with her Jewish grandmother, Faye, who we meet in the nursing home. As I said, she's recovering from a Mm -hmm. broken hip. And then there's Jason, the former fiancé of Ryan's. Uh, He's a gentle soul who decided he wanted to become a Jesuit. Uh, And he's the person who seems to sow good wherever he goes. He leaves a positive impression on whomever he meets. And yet, as Ryan says, he is friends with everyone and intimate with no one uh, mm-hmm. but her. And, uh, so uh, those are the three principles uh, in, uh, in the story. Very, very interesting. And we Mother have Tiffany, seems- as I said, the, the roommate of Ryan, who is kind of larger than life, and she is uh, <laughs> another character. So we have a lot of other characters in here. But basically those are the, the three main protagonists. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, no, no. No, no, that's quite all right. I'm glad you shared that. Well, mothers play a significant role. Can you speak about that? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, I think that Jason's Jesuit mentor, uh, while he was in, while he's in the seminary, Father Curran, uh, says it best uh, because when Jason is trying to uh, confer with him, and he asks him if there had ever been a woman in, the, in Father Curran's decision to become a priest. And Father Curran tells him, hell, there's always a woman. You know, from the minute we're conceived, there's a woman. You didn't get here mm-hmm. on your own, kiddo, you know. So that's, your mother <laughs> is uh, everyone's first woman. 
and uh, for a person who knows you longest in your life, uh, Eric has come home to care for his sick mother. And they have quite a tender relationship. He's very devoted, and particularly since his father is no longer alive and hasn't been for a while. And uh, Ryan is very much caught up with her mother. And she has the usual squabbles and, and pushes and pulls. Uh, she respects her talents, her beauty, and yet she resents her always needing to make things a generational or societal issue. She's very much uh, opinion, very opinionated, and she wants her. She would prefer that her mother just let things be, and uh, she wants Faye to be her mother instead. She wants the dead Isabella Stewart Gardner, who founded the Gardner Museum. She loves so passionately to be her mother. She wants all these. She looks for these other uh, mother images, and um, who she thinks would be the ideal mother. And Faye, in a way, is a mother to her. She at one point refers to her and says, I have two smart mothers, very smart mothers, and she considers Faye to be one of them. But she feels she could relate a little better to her grandmother because she has that one generation removed. And it does often make it easier to, to, uh, to roll things around with your grandparents than your own parents. It's not as charged, you know, it's not as heated. Mm-hmm. Uh, your grandparents are more relaxed at that point. And... Um, and Faye is a very with it grandmother. And then uh, Lauren, uh, Ryan's mother, has great concerns on how much time and energy her own mother, Faye, is demanding of Ryan and of herself. So she has her own conflicts with her own mother, uh, who you'll notice, note they call Faye, mm-hmm. and we learn later why they do in, in uh, the book. So, yes, motherhood is, uh, is I think, uh, plays a big role throughout the book. Interesting. You have all these characters. You have a bunch of characters on both sides of the equation. Mm-hmm. Were there specific themes you wanted to accomplish with the various characters? Um, I, you know, that, that I don't know. You know, I think that the necessity of finding the biggest theme is the necessity of finding common ground to sustain mm-hmm. love in any relationship. Uh, not just in romantic love, but in platonic love with their friends, uh, in love that spans across the generations with their their relatives. I think that um, one theme, if there is one theme that you could apply mm-hmm. everywhere, is that need for people to establish common ground. It has mm-hmm. to, uh, they have to do it within the townspeople, within the chamber. Um, they everyone. Oh, it's always gravitating towards finding common ground. That seems to be the thing that makes people survive uh, and makes love uh, sustainable. Very interesting. What was the most difficult challenge? Um, yeah. I think that uh, the most difficult challenge in all books um, is getting to know your characters, who they are, because mm-hmm. uh, unless you are... Uh, writing about uh, someone who truly did exist. Uh, mm-hmm. But when you're creating characters, getting with every character in this book, and there are many characters. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a book that has a lot of characters in it. And, uh, yeah, people don't realize when you're writing that you don't always know when you're creating those characters out of nothing, you don't know who they are for quite a while. And you can right. keep writing for a while. And you, it's, it's hard because you really don't know who they are. And until you get a grasp on who they are, um, 
then, you know, you know what they're going to do, what they're going to say. Uh, Mm -hmm. In this case of this book, it's like meeting someone and don't know that well, and then you have to get to know them better and better and better. Once you get mm-hmm. to know them better, then you can make them. You you can make them. You know what they're going to say, how they will respond to something, what what uh, what they will do, their actions. Uh, in this case, there are three protagonists, three voices from which a story is told: from Ryan, from Eric, from Jason. So it it's, it was imperative that I knew who they were before I could make them talk and behave. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, so many of the characters, even within the town of Bracton, I really had to know who each of those people were as people, uh, mm-hmm. even though they weren't uh, main protagonists. Um, it's a lot of balls to keep up in the air then, too. Then I have to keep <laughs> all these characters, uh, you know, uh, my, husband, my, my son made the comment, you know, how, how do you do this? How do you keep it all together? I said, it's kind of like making a really huge meal with lots and lots of courses uh, all coming in and out at one, you know, one time, the timing, yeah. and you just got to keep your mind focused on it and thinking about it all the time um, to keep the plot going, to keep the characters in line. So I think that that, though, is the most difficult challenge, just, you know, really, really getting to know those characters. And then once you do, they are so real to you. They are real. And mm-hmm. uh, they'll always be real to you. They'll always be real to me. It's like I know these people, even mm-hmm. though they don't really exist. Yeah. <laughs> very, very interesting. You could have told your son that, see that bad boy right here? That's you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what he thinks, but that's funny because he thinks it's him, but it's not really him. <laughs> there are some, I borrow, I did borrow some, as I say, I did borrow little snippets from my children's lives because they are the millennials yeah. I had to look at, but but they are not, none of those characters there. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, sometimes people like, they, they squawk about, they don't want you to write about them, but then if you're not in there, it's like, oh, they they pick themselves out, and and sometimes they pick themselves out in characters that you hadn't, you know, you never would yeah. associate them with yeah. them, and they think that you're writing about them. It's very interesting, which is that what I tell students some often: don't worry about what people are going to think, because mm-hmm. people are going to think all sorts of things. They'll think mm-hmm. characters are them when they're not. They'll they'll tell you not to write about them, but then they'll be disappointed that you don't. So you don't win anyway. So just write what right. you want to write and create your characters the way you do, and <laughs> just let the chips fall where they may. Very very interesting. What do you enjoy most about writing the book? I think what I just said about mm-hmm. uh, about getting becoming acquainted with those characters, having them interact, being able to. Be, and being able to have them address some of the societal uh, issues of the day uh, yeah. with great contemplation, like death, like uh, death with dignity, like caretaking, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, what we mentioned, interracial marriage, uh, religious beliefs. Uh, there's a lot going on, and, um, mm-hmm. and I think I enjoyed bringing those issues to the forefront. As you said, I'm glad you, you talked about that, and having these characters reflect different opinions, different ideas, mm-hmm. some change, some don't. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that I, I, that I enjoyed that the most. Very, very interesting. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. My guest is multi-award-winning novelist Marissa Labozetta. In 1999, Melissa released her first novel, Stay With Me, Layla. In 2006, she received a Pushcart Prize for her At the Copa collection. 
It was also a finalist for the John Gardner Fiction Award in 2009. Forecast for a sunny day from that collection won the Wachan Arts Center Award for Short Fiction in 2010. Her 2013 novel, Sometimes It Snows in America, was an Eric Hoffer Award finalist. Melissa and I are having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey, her passion for storytelling, and her latest novel, A Day in June. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Marosa, do you find yourself plugged in into the book in some ways? Uh, well, well I'm, I'm not any particular character in this book, that's for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, but I, I would say that I could I- identify with, in some ways, identify with some of the cultural background of some of the characters. I yeah. identify with some of the stamps taken on certain issues of, you know, that the stances some of the characters yeah. take. Um, I, I have stolen, as I said, little snippets of my children's lives, just very little pieces <laughs> here or there, things they've done to construct the background. Um, I will say that, that Lauren, um, I'll confess to Lauren, um, Ryan's mother was an art model in college, and I was an art model in college, so I, I, maybe that's the closest we can. <laughs> I will say that. I don't know why I made that happen in there, but I did make her that art model that I had been in college, <laughs> another job I had. Very interesting. I know you mentioned a lot of society values and current situation, real life, real situation, so to speak. If we have to summarize it, what are some of the lessons we can learn from the novel? Mm. Um, I think to listen whether it be mm-hmm. to our children, to our neighbors, to our parents, our grandparents, uh, the need to listen. We do a lot of talking and yelling, especially nowadays, and I don't know that we're listening. And to listen within ourselves to find out who we really are, um, but especially for young people, because only then you know, can you choose some kind of path and satisfying path in life. We always learn from one another, and I think in the end all of these characters – have learned from one another, just as I, the writer, I learn mm-hmm. from them, and as I hope the reader learns. You learn as you write, as you go along, because you are, uh, you are really contemplating and learning about so much, uh, so many issues, and studying. And then in the end, uh, you you come out learning yourself, and you hope that the reader learns. So I think that we need to listen. That's really the biggest lesson. Fantastic. Where can someone go? to buy your books, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, my books can be ordered at any bookstore, any local bookstore you'd like to go to if the bookstore does not have a carry or carry it in stock. And, of course, it can be bought online from many of the major distributors. Um, it, my website, you can go to my website, which is www.marisalabazetta.com, and there there are links to purchasing uh, any of my books, all of my books, as well as uh, readings I'll be doing and other events I'm doing. And, it, and my email address is there. Uh, I love to hear from readers, so uh, I'd be delighted if someone contacted me. Um, and li- some libraries, certainly libraries, will carry the book. Mm-hmm. So let's not mm-hmm. forget our libraries. Anywhere books are sold, really. The book can always be gotten, as long Wonderful. as you have the, uh, the title and my name. It was just recently released, right? Last week, yes. if I'm saying? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Really, the official date was May 1st, right? But it's out. It's available, yes. Fantastic. 
How has writing a day in June impacted you personally? How has it impacted me? Uh, well, mm-hmm. I said, uh, you know, what I um, I think it's brought me closer in a way to that generation that I was trying to write about. Yeah. Um, I, I think it really has, and I think it's given me more of an understanding, which is, uh, you know, what I set out to do, what I wanted to do. Um, somehow the book makes me, even though it takes on serious issues, which I myself, you know, have certainly have to deal with in life. Uh, I think it makes me, it's kind of a happy book. Mm -hmm. And uh, so somehow there's something about the book that makes me happy, and I hope it makes other people happy and and hopeful when they read it. Wonderful. Is that a good answer? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I think when you work on a project of this magnitude, we talked about this a little bit just now in terms of like, okay, you start on this project, begin with the end in mind for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. right? So we know exactly where mm-hmm. we're ending. And then there's certain things, even though you have that sort of idea, as you get into it, you are totally passion-driven now. And the fact that you have so many different characters in the book, I'm sure it shifted along the way, if that makes sense. It's still going down the same road. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure some has developed a little bit more than what you thought it was in the very beginning. And then mm-hmm. you, you just sort of let it flow. And that's the beauty of your writing. So if you could share that with us in terms of that, what you did with this book. Yeah, I mean, even in the case of, I think, uh, in the case of the town, the town of Bracken, mm-hmm. and you have these community members. And as I said before, they function in a way, at, which does happen in literature, uh, as we know, in the past it can function as a unit, a group of people as a unit, like Murder on the Orient Express, mm-hmm. you know. Or, uh, so you, uh, I can think of other, uh, in fact, I make a reference in the book, one of the women is, is speaking, refers the, the uh, refers to them as, she, she looks at them and says, you remind me of, as we feel in a the uh, Lope de uh, Vega novel, uh, play, mm-hmm. which is um, one where the, the town functions as a whole, where murders are committed and everyone stands together. But she's yeah. and separate because they're all, she's new to the community, this woman, and she, she, and she says that, and they all look at her like she's crazy. They don't understand. <laughs> That's what I'm They are functioning as a solid unit, yet within that unit, there are all these different characters. And uh, it, it's, I think having them be in, become their own little individuals, uh, mm-hmm. some change, some don't. Uh, what were their influences? Uh, interacting with the major characters too. Some of them uh, they all have to at some point. Um, I think that um, you know that that was um, it was challenging, but I think that was a real uh, satisfying uh, uh, and learning experience for me to hand, to handle that. And I think when I set out, I wasn't looking at them functioning as a town like that. And mm-hmm. I realized mm-hmm. that that's what was happening. We had this, this body of people, but then we had all these little individuals in there. And we have to really address them because everybody's somebody. And that's it. Right. Everyone is different. We're all different. We're all somebody. And they all had their different characteristics, personalities, belief systems. So um, I, I liked doing that a lot. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. What's next for you? Well, I'm working on uh, a book of linked short stories now. So I've gone back okay. to that. 
you know, it, it kind of requires, that's a, it's, it is something I've done before. It's a challenge, mm-hmm. but it is something I've done before. And, you know, it's something where the stories have to stand on their own, uh, and yet you have to link both the plots and the characters to each, to each other in a way that moves the narrative along without repetition and with very little cross-referencing. So it's, it, it's a challenge. I have done it, but, uh, but that's what I'm attempting to do again. So that's where I am. <laughs> Wonderful. As an accomplished writer, what three things can you share to aspiring writers to fine-tune their craft? Well, one I'd say... You know, unplug your earbuds, take them out, and I always say eavesdrop. <laughs> Listen carefully. When you're in a restaurant uh-huh. and somebody else is sitting there writing down with a pencil and pad or you're sitting at a computer, they might not be doing your grocery list or a term paper, but they might be writing a transcript of your conversation because you can pick up a lot by just listening to people. Um, that will hone your, help you hone your craft and give you a, an ear for character development. Um, don't write in a vacuum. I say I would say get mm-hmm. input from other writers, perhaps in a writer's group or at a workshop. And all writers uh, learn to love to rewrite. You've got to do that. And read, 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 read. It's, um, you need to learn to love to rewrite and to read. That mm-hmm. reading will lift you out of, a, lifts me out of any way out of a writer's block if I ever have mm-hmm. it. I just start mm-hmm. reading. Pick up someone else's book and read. Mm-hmm. And that will get you thinking in that vein. When you started out, did you have any authors that you followed and you liked their style in terms of how they present themselves, their writings, and so forth that sort of inspires you? Yeah, I always liked uh, uh, Margaret Atwood. I enjoy her writing. I love... um, Daphne du Maurier, which is uh, mm-hmm. very much how I, my last uh, book of Ling short stories, um, if it could any, be anywhere near as good as hers, I'd be delighted. <laughs> um, but it's kind of, she's my inspiration there. I've always devoured all of her books. Um, yeah, I think they're kind of my uh, heroes there. I like Eudora Welty's uh, short stories. I read mm-hmm. all of her short stories. Definitely influenced my short stories especially her endings. I like the way she would um, leave her endings a little bit open. I like mm-hmm. that. They're interesting. I know you teach writing. What is the number one challenge for aspiring writers? Well, I think, you know, what they think is, um, is to get published nowadays. <laughs> I mean, that's what they goal <laughs> they look at as opposed to, you know, even after they've written their work. It's tough. It's a tough market right now. Uh, there's a lot of self-publishing, which can be good and beneficial, mm-hmm. and then it's bad, on the other hand, because there's a, so much work floating out there. The publishing industry has changed very much over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, a, there's a lot more uh, busy work, business work, I call it, left on the shoulders of the writers to do. Uh, so it's, um, you know, as it's, it's not easy. I will say yeah. that it's not e- an easy uh, an, an easy profession to break into. So, um, you know, I think maybe that's probably the toughest thing they face. Besides being published, what is the number one fear that all writers encounter? The fear mm-hmm. <laughs> that they encounter? Uh, yeah. You mean that they're going, well, and many people cannot take criticism and that is something you have to, in the arts, you have to learn to take. Yeah. 
uh, I remember um, mine saying, you know, you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen, <laughs> because you're just going to have to learn to take criticism. You know, not you're not going to write and then have everyone always writing glowing things about you because it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, people will not like your work. People will will criticize, dissect it in ways you don't uh, you don't think is fair. But that's the business. You know, and yeah. um, no matter what kind of writer you are, uh, you have to take critic, be able to take criticism. I think it's a good lesson in life, though, to be able to yeah. to take that. You're right about that. I remember when my book first came out, a friend of mine was telling me, "Now you're going to have somebody who's not going to give you a four or five stars." I said, "Okay, that's fine." And then, hold and behold, before you know it, I had a two star, and what they wrote was really got nothing to do with the book itself. They had some other failures with certain things. And like, I would like to crawl into my computer. Right. <laughs> right. Come out on the other side. <laughs> right. Sometimes criticism is, is valid. And then sometimes right, right. people, it's yeah. where they're coming from. They have their own baggage and their own issues. And you have to, you know, you just have to accept that. And that's right. the way it is. I agree what you're saying because sometimes it's got nothing to do with you. And that's the one that actually is much more painful to me, certainly. I mean, it's like, hey, it's got nothing to do with me when your Kindle breaks. (laughs) 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 So anyway, any final thoughts about a day in June? Well, um, I guess I can just leave you with that life's a contest and you have to enter to win. So pick up a copy and read and enjoy my book. I hope you do. (laughs) Fantastic. But we'll be coming close to the end of the hour since our show is about people, family, and living life. Would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Sure. Uh, You know, one that I feel very strongly about nowadays, Johnny, I always have, but it seems to I become more and more passionate about it. And all I can say is when you walk down the street, look at the person passing you and smile and say hi or hello or good morning or good evening. Mm -hmm. And I think I've used this on your program before. As an uncle of mine used to say, when you find someone who needs a smile, loan him one of yours. And I'll have that when you're, you find yourself sitting across from a stranger, uh, whether it's at a table or in public transportation, don't take out your iPhone. Be old-fashioned and start a conversation. Uh, really, I think we're losing a lot in society. And that's my recipe. Fantastic. I love it. I've always tell people that a smile is a handshake that is seldom refused. Mm-hmm. Love that. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, what you're talking about is just fabulous. It's really, really fantastic. I really like that. I know you mentioned about your short stories and so forth. So tell us a little bit more about the beautiful book right here, Day in June. So what's next on your schedule in terms of book signing and presentation? Yeah, well, so I'll be in, actually, we'll be in Boston uh, on May 18th at a place called, in the north end of Boston, a very lovely little bookstore called I Am Books. And mm-hmm. um, I will be reading there and signing books there. Uh, two weeks after that, I'll be May 30th, I'll be in Brooklyn, New York, actually back in my old neighborhood where I was asked to come and, mm-hmm. um, and read there and also discuss my earlier book, which, which took place there, one of my early ones. And so uh, I'll be there. In the summertime, I'll be in Manhattan 
at um, and Mulberry Street down uh, mm-hmm. in Soho at a library, doing a reading there. Uh, so we've got things, on, and I, I, I may be in Texas in the fall. I'm not sure, but that's a possibility. So we've got things uh, lining up. Fantastic. I noticed that Vermont is not on the list. <laughs> oh, Vermont. No, I'm not going up to Vermont yet. <laughs> I know that. I know. I'm sort of, maybe I'm the one afraid to go up there. <laughs> well, you and then I did an line. interview. Uh-huh. <laughs> I go did ahead. an interview, and, and the interviewer asked me why I, why I, I called it Bracton and why I didn't yeah. make it a real town. I said, because I didn't right. want to make it a real town. And No, but I said mm-hmm. I wanted to. I said I wanted to have that alliteration because I have yeah. the line in there that Bracton is for brides, and so I wanted the uh-huh. BR sound. So he said, well, you could have used Burlington. You could have used right. – um, uh, he named a couple of towns up there. And I said, no, uh-huh. that's not the point. I didn't want to use the real town. <laughs> I said, then I would really be in trouble. I said, no. <laughs> so if you happen to cross the state line and you see your face on the billboard, don't take it as a compliment. <laughs> No, I think that that would be one of the situations. <laughs> that would be it. There she is. Marissa, thank you for the great recipes, for living, and for spending this hour with me. I'm from My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning, May 14. My guest will be Amy Newmark, the publisher and editor-in-chief for Chicken Soup for the Soul. Amy and I will be talking about their latest release, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Life Lessons from the Cat, 101 Tales of Family friendship, and fun. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Marissa, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again, and have a blessed day. It's been great talking to you again, Johnny. You too. Same to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.